virtual couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultramarathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, which is an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. So if you know anyone who is struggling with pornography addiction, if you've had that struggle yourself, please go to pathbackrecovery.com and uh, there you can find tools that can help you overcome that addiction once and for all. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. Uh, I am grateful to to be on the mic today. Um, I'm doing a, another kind of a special podcast. This is one, um, a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are, are friends of mine and fellow ultra runners. And, and I have that in there in the intro. Um, an ultra runner, I've answered a couple of questions about that in earlier pods. Uh, but I did, I ran a race Saturday. And so I want to do um, maybe shorter pods that I will just call race reports. So back in the day, and I'm talking a long time ago, this is when blogs were kind of brand new, I would write a race report. And you would do that after every race and really enjoyed that. Race reports were a huge thing. And if you were going to run a race somewhere around the country, you would look for the race report for that race. And so I, I've written race reports for a couple of uh, the 100-mile runs I've ran, Western States 100, um, uh, Rio del Lago 100, the Tahoe Rim Trail 100. And, and those race reports still to this day are some of the most read pieces on um, my personal blog. But before I get started, I do want to just send um, prayers, thoughts out to everyone here in California who are struggling with the fires. There are so many fires um, blazing across the state and this morning at work, I do have my window open and it is it is hazy and it is really hazy and you can smell it. It's kind of made its way into my building and uh, through the vents and it's just, you, you smell that smoke. And yesterday I actually had a client in session get a phone call and this client let me know that they, they might be getting a phone call and, and of course uh, told them it's fine to take it. And they took it and they did receive word that they needed to evacuate. So um, we had to kind of process that real time, and, and this person in particular already had their car packed, and they had a plan, and uh, but it was it was hard to to kind of um, work through what they were going through, and especially just going through a house and saying what is absolutely necessary um, and what is not, and, and you know, and that is one of those situations where uh, you, people find what is that that things most things are replaceable, and so it is it's the memories, it's the um, you know, some journals or some photos or those sort of things that are the things that really are, are what you want to take with you. And and on that note, I've been to a training or two where we've even talked about uh, when people, when danger is coming or people know that they may may have to leave, flooding, fires, that sort of thing. And uh, just trying to do that prep work in advance. Nobody really expects, especially with the fire, that it is going to be in their backyard. And so at this one training in particular, um, the, the presenter talked about taking photos of photos, the special photos that you maybe want to save. And in this day and age, having those uploaded onto a cloud somewhere is not a bad idea. And, uh, and then I will tell you, I met with a client later on who has been doing an amazing job of decluttering their life. And so we used the example of having to leave for a fire or for a flood to really kind of spur action and to really be able to identify what in their home is important, what is not important. And, and I'm going to write myself a note too. You know, the last edition of the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that we use as therapists um, to diagnose, actually introduced the category or the diagnosis of hoarding. And, um, you know, if you've watched those shows on TV, hoarding shows, you know, you see these 
these people that live in places where they can barely make it through a room and other rooms are completely packed. And I have worked with people like that, but there are a lot of people that are just hanging on to things. And a lot of those things have come from whether it's therapeutic shopping or just that that overall feeling that uh, kind of consumerism gives where you feel like if I buy this next thing, that uh, that will make me happy. And so, and I've struggled with that too. I have to tell you, um, uh, you know, I, gosh, I'm sitting here wearing probably one of about 15 pair of khaki pants. I think, uh, you know, back when I was a, a, a shiny new therapist, um, I probably a bad thing that there was a Ross nearby. And whenever I would have a client cancel, I would just go on a uh, walk over there to Ross. And, uh, and if they had, you know, if they had khaki pants for under a certain price range, I'm in. And so, you know, I think I've had to finally tell myself, I've admitted to my wife, no more khaki pants. I've got plenty. Um, although, uh, I put on a couple of pounds and all of a sudden it's like, you know, um, a bigger size might not be a bad idea, but I'm trying to use that as motivation to lose that weight. So, but, but I wanted to, you know, and before I get to the race report as well, I have to tell you, I, I could not be more excited about the interview that I did last night with Paul Gilmartin. Paul is the host of the Mental Illness Happy Hour, um, kind of a funny name for a podcast, but it's one of the top podcasts on iTunes. I can't even imagine the number of downloads that that podcast gets. He's done over 350 episodes, and I've been a fan of it. I mean, if you're in the mental health field, he has had therapists and uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, and uh, actors, musicians, comedians, all of them on there to talk about their struggles with everything from anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. He's had people on there that have, you know, deprogrammed from from cults, people who have um, worked in mental institutions. I mean, it's just a fascinating podcast. And Paul, by nature, uh, or by 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 job, by um, by craft, is a comedian. So he does bring a lot of humor to that, but he also is very open about his struggles with um, with depression and suicidal thoughts. And so it's a, I, you know, I've been a fan of his for a long time because of the work he does on the podcast. Um, and it was just, I reached out to him. I really didn't expect him to get back to me. He did. We talked for an hour. And so I'm editing that now and I want to be able to put that up, uh, before the end of the week. But I also wanted to get to this podcast, um, as soon as I could, basically while my legs were still sore and while the uh, race was still fresh in my mind. So if you are not a runner, um, you can feel free to, to go ahead and tune out, um, but if you're, you know, kind of try to cover some, some of the more interesting things about ultra running, this race in particular was the, and I know I'm saying this wrong because the guy at the rental car place who asked me why I was coming into town, um, when I said what I'm about to say, he said it much cooler than I did, but it's, uh, Kayamaka 100K, C-U-Y-A-M-A-C-A. So I ran the Kayamaka 100K, which was down in San Diego this past Saturday. Um, I guess the sense that these, uh, podcasts will be up, uh, forever, um, it was Saturday uh, on the, I believe that was the 7th or the 8th of, what month are we in? October 2017. So um, the race is is listed as 100K. If you do the math on that, if, you, if you're a 10K runner, if you're a 5K runner, that's 3.1 miles. So 10K is obviously uh, 6.2. So 100K would be um, uh, what, roughly uh, 61 and change, 62 miles. This This race in particular was 63.3 miles and that you know that was significant I, I don't even know how many times I thought I'm almost done toward the end but I'll kind of get to that but so a 63.3 mile race down in San Diego and I'll read this off the website um, just to talk about the course it says the majority of the Kayamaka 
100K course lies within the boundaries of Cayamaca Rancho State Park, approximately one hour east of San Diego. So we, we stayed in a town called Santee, but we were able to make it over to the beach, and it was just beautiful. I love San Diego. I love everything about the ocean and the beach. Um, but it uh, starts, it says, uh, the course consists of three distinct loops, all of which start and end at Camp Cayamaca off of Highway 79. Each loop covers a different set of trails with minimal backtracking and repetition. The first and longest loop of 32.3 miles, um, and that was the first loop, basically a 50K race, traverses the western side of the park from south to north and summits the park's highest point, Cayamaca Peak, which was 6,500 feet. So it really did get up there. And I think a lot of times when you think of San Diego, at least for me, I didn't really think much about mountains. But so it peaked at 6,500 feet. The second loop was um, a mere 12.6 miles, and I was counting on that one to be the easy one, um, and takes in the southeast corner of the park near Oak Zanita Peak. The final loop of 18.3 miles brings runners through the northern section of the park, briefly leaves the park, and enters Anza Borrego and travels along the PCT, I think that's Pacific Crest Trail, overlooking spectacular desert views before returning to Cayamaca's northern meadows and returning south to the finish. The total elevation gain and loss for this race was 8,800 feet. So that's a fair amount of climbing. For perspective, I will tell you that this Western States 100-mile run, the what I believe is the Super Bowl of 100-mile runs, which is, is in here in my backyard. Um, it's been around for over 40 years. I've had the pleasure to run it three, three times. I believe that has something like 40,000 feet of, of uh, climbing. Um, so this one, you know, it wasn't uh, for 63 miles, though, climbing up and down 8,800 feet was plenty. And, uh, um, and boy, there's a section I'll talk about that uh, I felt every one of those feet. So I, I used to write race reports, and I had a tendency to go on for days and days and days. Um, but I really enjoyed it. It was a nice way to connect to this ultra running community. And, uh, and, and a lot of folks who kind of get to the point of ultra running, um, I guess I'll kind of say, you know, I don't know, I think there's a screw loose with uh, each one of us too. I mean, it's that, that concept I've talked about in previous podcasts where, you know, it becomes your happy place. It becomes kind of your, um, in, in theory, socially acceptable, uh, somewhat healthy addiction, the place where you go to kind of get those endorphins and feel good chemicals to kind of uh, release the tensions and pressures of the world. So that's kind of that ultra running community. And, and I know that a lot of people, um, maybe do think it's bad on the body, that sort of thing. Uh, and I have a lot, a lot to say about that. You can go Google. I think, it, uh, I wish I had the name handy, but there's a Stanford study over 20 years that shows that, uh, prolonged running actually, if the proper form, the biomechanics are good, that there's actually an increased amount of blood flow through the the joints and the cartilage and that sort of thing. So I personally feel like, um, you know, I hear all the time, oh, I bet your knees are shot or wait till it catches up to you. But uh, I've been doing this um, this running for a long time, over 20 years. And, uh, and my only injuries have really come from playing basketball. So not really the running. So that part, um, you know, I, I just, I absolutely love the ultra running, but I know that when some people do start to bump up the miles and they set goals on doing some of these ultra marathon runs that, uh, at times their body does break down. And I think a lot of times when you look at that, it's biomechanics. Um, people will run on the same pitch or camber of the road all the time. And so their body, um, the, the musculature, the, the, you know, everything about the body kind of adjusts to, to how you're running. And that can cause um, an imbalance in your running. Or if you don't change out your shoes, I mean, it's recommended to change out your shoes every 
three to 500 miles. And so if you're putting on a lot of miles every day, it's a good idea to, to replace the shoes. And if the shoes aren't a good fit or there are people that have, you know, one leg slightly longer than the other or, you know, there's just so many things. And I think when the body gets out of balance, um, the body is an amazing machine, obviously, and it, and it tries to uh, correct. So even if there's pain in some area of your body on one side, you, you know, I believe that the, the other side of the body is going to maybe pay more attention to what it needs to do to bring your body into alignment or stability. And so, but that over time can then cause these uh, wear injuries or these repetitive use injuries. So I, I felt fortunate and blessed that, um, that my, my uh, I think, I guess my biomechanics are fairly good. I change out my shoes and, uh, and I just absolutely love this sport of ultra running. So um, I, here's the, here's the, the kind of the fun part about this race so going into this race as a as a normally as an ultra marathon runner, I'll have a lot of people when they see me say, "Hey, are you still running?" And and I'm always I boy super nice uh, and say, "You bet, love it." Um, but on the inside, part of me is saying, "I can't stop running." I mean, and this is that part where um, the the maybe the the way that I deal with things or the socially acceptable quote healthy addiction. Uh, if I go more than a couple of days without running. Um, my, my brain tells me that then I am shorter, balder, fatter, a worse husband, a worse therapist, you know, um, a, a church servant, all of those things that those kind of thoughts go through my head. So, so for me, running has been just so therapeutic. And, uh, and even on that note, um, you know, I've got this routine in the morning where I get up exceptionally early. Uh, my, my family, I don't even think for years was aware of, of how much I did run because I, I just love to get up early. I run the streets around my town. I've got my headlamp on, um, usually listening to some sort of motivational talk or, or a, an audio book. I love those. And, and when you spend a lot of time on the road like that, you can, you can listen to a lot of books and uh, feel like you're well-read. Um, but so w- the challenge with this run uh, was last year, there, was, um, there were some things kind of going on that needed to complete the path back. And there's this fundraising run that I had done for six years in our community where I would run around a track for 24 hours to raise money for for schools and try to motivate kids to embrace fitness, that sort of thing. And um, and the, the school that I was I had done that for in the past had decided to kind of move a different direction. And so I, had, I learned that I wasn't going to be doing that run again. And so I tried to pour my energy into the path back and get that, that program finished. And, the, and kind of the consequence of that was instead of running, you know, I don't know, 8 to 10 miles every day and then 20 to 25 miles on a Saturday, uh, that those runs kind of went back down to they started being 5 miles a day and maybe 10 miles on a weekend. So it uh, still sounds like plenty and it was fine, but over time you're kind of losing a little bit of those base miles that I think ultra runners count on. So I headed into a run at this middle school. I was just going to go run as part of their jogathon. And I ran with them throughout the day. So I think I did 20-something miles through the day. I think that was in uh, maybe March or early April. But eight days before that, I was playing basketball with my son, and I pulled an adductor muscle in my groin. Um, always fun to talk about the groin, right? Just that, that whole word. Uh, as I said that, I thought, man, I'm recording this on a podcast. But So I tear this muscle in my – or tear, pull this muscle in my groin. And then kind of like a dummy, I didn't want to back out on the, the kids because there was already, had you know, everywhere I go, um, well, that, that's an exaggeration, but I often hear of, hey, are you doing the run again this year? Or, or, you know, I've received letters and cards and emails and just over the years that have been amazing. I mean, they, they really make me just uh, just love the community that I live in, but that talk about the run or the, what a difference the run has made or has had people um, embrace fitness or talk to their kids about running or that sort of thing. And so 
So I didn't want to just not show up. Um, so uh, even to this event that I was going to do, this jogathon for the day. So I pulled this adductor muscle eight days before doing this run. And, and I have to tell you, in the past, if I knew I was going to run for 24 hours or I had this important race, I wouldn't play basketball for a good month before because it was that important. But I felt like I was only going to go run for seven or eight hours around a track with the kids so I could play basketball, and I kind of paid for that. So I ran um, hurt, injured, maybe not smart, and got the 20-something miles in. And then I was down for the count. So I think uh, May, June, that sort of thing. I didn't do much of anything. I tried to do a little bit of elliptical, but it would still hurt this adductor. So I come back right around Memorial Day because I remember I was running in Reno for my son's basketball tournament, uh, just starting to get the miles back up. And I'm talking like four or five miles and feeling pretty good about it, running two or three days a week. And uh, the adductor felt good. And I go play basketball again. I'm a 47-year-old man. I'm there with a bunch of uh, uh, my son who's a teenager and some uh, former high school players in our area. And, uh, you know, I just love playing basketball like that with, uh, with all those guys that, could, uh, that are my kid's age. And, uh, but I, I, I guess I probably got a little bit uh, too confident on defense, and I, I took on this larger guy. Um, he wasn't a big fan of uh, my son and I. Had actually, I love this story. My son and I were playing on the same team, and we we're having fun with each other. And we both hit a couple of shots, and it's uh, it's over this one particular guy. So everybody kind of gives this guy on defense a little bit of grief. You know, first of all, it's like, oh, the 13 year old scored on you, and then the next play down, I I hit a shot on him, and then they're like, now the old man. You know, and in that situation, I'm cool being the old man. That is fine. But then we come back on defense, and now here I am, the old man. Who, by the way, for any old men that play basketball still. I don't do defense. I mean, I kind of just stand out there. So I don't know what possessed me in this particular possession, but, I, but I'm in the key. This guy who just had the, the young guy score on him and the old man score on him, um, and he had already kind of uh, had, a, had a couple of uh, situations where he had been a little more physical than we usually um, like to play. I, I still don't really know who this person was. So then I decide to, to kind of defense him up, D him up, as they say uh, in basketball. And uh, again, I don't know why. Guy's giant. He's way bigger than me, and I'm an old man. And so right as I'm starting to kind of square myself, um, he clears me out with an elbow and breaks a couple of ribs. I, I never felt that. That kind of pain, you know, the wind went out. Uh, I tried. I walked up and down the court for a little while, but then I was out. So now we're looking at uh, months. So I'd had an, an adductor injury. I just get back to running. I break a couple of ribs. And I've got this Kayamuka 100K on the calendar, which brings up, I had reached out to some of uh, some people on social media and said, uh, hey, I'm going to talk about this race. What are some questions? I got a lot of great ones. Um, but that kind of goes into the first, why? Why, why was I going to do it then? Why was it important, especially with a lack of training? And uh, so heading into this race with the, the, the adductor and the broken ribs, um, I did get back to running the last month, month and a half before the race, and I had gotten myself up to maybe five or six miles a day, and I had done a long run of 15 miles, one of those, and it was pretty slow. So I'm going to go run 100K in the trails, and I hadn't even put, you know, stepped foot on a trail since a race last November, um, and, uh, and I didn't have the mileage. So there was a part of me that a couple weeks before I thought, this isn't very smart, um, which maybe it still wasn't, but it goes back to why. So why? So this Western States 100-mile run, the Super Bowl of 100s, which I just love it. I love everything about it. Um, it's in my backyard. The, the, I mean, there are the, the aid station volunteers are amazing. The, there are so many people there at the race, running the race. It's just it's so top-notch and first-class. But you, it is so popular, and I think that this is the part that when if you aren't in this ultra-running world, this is kind of fascinating 
but you have to get picked in a lottery to run the Western States 100. They have about three or 400 spots for this race. And last I heard, I think there were about 4,000 people a year that are trying to get into it. So the key is if you don't get in, you, you know, the first year you apply, you have to run a qualifying race. And there are only certain races or qualifying races. And those qualifying races either consist of 100-mile runs or um, pretty difficult 100K runs. So this was my Western States qualifier. I haven't ran Western States for a couple of years. And so when you run a qualifier and you enter Western States, you get to put a ticket in. And uh, if you don't get picked, then the next year you run another qualifier and now you'll get two tickets in. So I didn't want to lose my tickets. So I had to go run this 100K. Um, I guess I, I here I am, the therapist in me says, I didn't have to. I wanted to. I felt it was important still to run this 100K. But with that little training, I, I thought there was no way that I was going to make it through this. So my goal from a purely therapeutic standpoint was I was going to mindfulness the heck out of this race. And, uh, and I really haven't gone all in on a podcast on mindfulness yet, but it is, it is such, a, such a wonderful thing to embrace and to learn. And in essence, what it is doing, mindfulness is a practice that helps you basically change the relationship with your thoughts. So not chase the negative thoughts. And, you know, there's a, the awareness component of mindfulness is just mind-blowing. It's that whole piece to where if you sit and watch the thoughts. If you're just an observer of the thoughts in your head, just for one minute, if you can really practice just observing your thoughts, they go everywhere. And uh, and I you know I already hesitate if I've given this example already. Um, I apologize, but uh, when I've been speaking recently, here's my example of awareness. So I've been driving home, and I'm trying to pause an audiobook, and I'm trying to just be present while I'm driving, and and just observe the thoughts in my head. So. Uh, and I do it here in my office sometimes too. I kind of sit back on my couch, kind of focus a little bit on my breathing, you know, breathing going in through the nose, out through the mouth. If you just use all mouth breathing, uh, you're going to hyperventilate. So in through the nose, out through the mouth, and, and just kind of sit back, look out my window, and just observe. And before I know it, my thoughts are kind of all over the map with things I'm seeing and thoughts and, and worries and concerns and hopes and dreams, and, and it, it'll just kind of go everywhere. And I'll kind of get back to the point of that in a minute. But the awareness uh, speech that I've been given lately is I'm driving home, and uh, I'm in my bug, my this bug that I bought for my daughter. Um, the bug has been broken down. As a matter of fact, ironically, I had to bring it today because it uh, broke down again a couple of days ago. So I'm in this bug. It's a light blue bug. It's convertible. The top doesn't work. Um, we just found out, which is awesome. Um, having a convertible bug in California that the top doesn't work. but uh, And that's sarcasm, by the way. So I'm driving home, and I decide I'm going to do this mindfulness exercise. So I pause everything. I'm looking around. I start looking, and it's, you know, uh, car, um, road. You know, you're really just observing your thoughts. And at first, it can feel so silly because it is literally going to be, I'm looking at the car in front of me. I'm looking at the road in front of me. But before long, your mind just kind of takes over. So here's what happened in this situation. I'm driving. I'm on this, uh, for, for people around my area here, this Highway 65, heading back to my hometown. And I, I'm, I'm at the car, the road, the whatever part. And then I notice this four-door Porsche just comes just speeding up behind me. I mean, one of those things where it is so fast, it's kind of freaky. So still trying to observe my thoughts, right? So here's, here's let me take you on my train of thought. Okay, Tony's going to be aware. And Tony just realized he used third person as well, which I'm trying not to do. Uh, makes me sound uh, kind of like a goof. But so I am driving, and I'm going to be aware, and then I start looking. Car, road, oh my gosh, Porsche. Man, that guy came up on me fast. 
And look at him. He, he thinks he's so cool. That guy is a jerk. I can't. I bet he thinks he's so cool with that Porsche. And, and look at me. I'm in a bug. Not only a bug, but a light blue bug. A girl's bug. And not only a girl's bug, but a broken down girl's bug with a convertible top that doesn't work. And I like my other car better. And I should be driving that. But but I can't because I, I made I bought this other bug and I didn't want to buy it. And and before I knew it, I mean, I am I am all in on this just woe is me. And I am talking 10 seconds before I'm driving home just thinking everything is great. So I bring that up just to illustrate what our mind can do, uh, you know, when we kind of look at that from a, when we're kind of just observing our thoughts from a mindfulness standpoint, from an awareness standpoint. So taking that example and, and the point being that why am I going to then let this guy who is just speeding up behind me in this Porsche now, all of a sudden, you know, I'm basically looking through my wallet for my man card and I'm going to throw it out the window. So that why, you know, 10 seconds earlier, I, I had that man card firmly tucked in my wallet. So at that point, you know, I kind of turn back to my breathing a little bit in through the nose, out through the mouth, pull over into the slow lane and I let him pass. I don't even look over at him. I don't do anything mean. And as a matter of fact, I wish him well. Good for him that he's got that uh, four door Porsche. Um, and I wasn't and I was trying not to covet as well at that point. So, so there's what awareness looks like. So this race, I mean, I was going to go full on in awareness. I was going to, if, if I was hurting, if I was wanting to quit, I was going to focus, focus on my footfall, focus on the rocks in front of me, focus on the sounds, focus on nature, the trees, the trails, um, the crisp air, everything about it. Focus on other runners as I ran by. Can I help them? Uh, can I engage with them? Can I talk with them? Can I not think about what if, what if, what if my legs give out? What if my hydration is bad? Um, I can't do this. I mean, those are just thoughts. And I was, I was really going to work on moving those through my head. So, so the race specifically, um, I'll kind of get, and that's why though. So I'm trying to qualify for Western States. Um, I'm undertrained, but I really did want to try to practice mindfulness on this run. So let me hit the questions. I think this will be, uh, this will be an easy way to kind of, uh, finish up this podcast. Uh, first one I received was, do you stop? So the answer to that is yes-ish. Um, you do stop. I mean, you're, you're going to run 63.3 miles. They have aid stations, and every race is a little bit different. At this race in particular, there are aid stations um, you know, every five or six miles. There was one stretch where the, there wasn't an aid station for nine miles. But so you'll stop at the aid stations, and at the aid stations, they have a just every kind of food, ultra-running food you would want. And, and that's a whole thing in itself, depending on the race and the conditions and my body and whatever it is, I have found myself craving all kinds of things. There have been races where I've eaten, they have boiled potatoes and you dip them in salt. There are races where I've wanted chips. Um, there was one race in particular, another 100K, where I could not get enough M&Ms. When I first started doing ultra running, I was just, I loved brownie bites. Um, but over the time, I've kind of settled into, I try to do a little bit of solid food, but I but I really, there's always some sort of gel or something that kind of just gives you, it's all carb, carbohydrates and gives you energy. So, um, but so that was the, do you stop? Yes, you, you stop at the aid stations. And, and there's kind of, in a race like this, you are going to power walk or power hike a lot of the uphills. And I think that's the part where um, a lot of people don't really understand uh, what, what some of these hills look like. I mean, they are, they are for the most part unrunnable, except for the really the elites. Unrunnable either because of the, the roots, the rocks, or just the pitch, you know, just the, the, the steepness of the hill. Um, and on those, you know, you are, you are walking, but you're trying to walk kind of fast. As a matter of fact, my first, um, hundred ever, one of my pacers, you get in, 
in these longer races, you can have pacers at the end of the races, basically to try to make sure that you're safe because you might not be thinking straight. And I had uh, my German friend, Teo, and it was my first hundred. And he was going to take me from, I think, I don't know, mile 70 to the finish, somewhere like that. So he gets me. I'm kind of beat. I'm starting to, I'm, I'm just setting out from this aid station. I walk and Teo just, he's, I mean, and I'm, I kind of barely knew him at that point, but he's on me. And he's saying with his uh, German accent, walk with a purpose, walk with a purpose. And so that rings in my head all the time. Walk with the purpose uh, when you're walking up these hills. So, so that's the do you stop. The next question, I get this all the time and I totally understand why. Do you go to the bathroom? Um, you know, when I go speak to schools, that one comes up a lot too. When I talk about running around a track for 24 hours, uh, you know, when I go speak to the schools about that, that one comes up and I, I used to do this kind of, uh, I thought it was a pretty funny answer where I say, you know, I, I had this whole thing about that over time I've trained my body to, to basically not need to go to the bathroom. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, it, it, it comes out in the form of like, uh, you know, um, little pills or something that, that, that excrete from my armpits or whatever I would say at the time. And I, you know, some of the kids would laugh. The other ones are like, just looking at me like, Oh my gosh, I want to do that too. Uh, so I, I don't kind of go with that joke anymore, but yeah, absolutely. Go to the bathroom. Um, you're on a trail, you're, you're on the trails, you're out in the middle of nowhere. So, um, kind of the bathroom is everywhere, but I will tell you one of my first Western States experiences um, I was in the nineties of miles. I remember where, no, in the eighties. I remember where it was and it was still dark. I had headlamps. I had a pacer and, uh, I look and there's a guy and I think he looks like he's just kind of on the trail, kind of sitting down. And when you get to mile 80 or 90 of a hundred mile run, every now and again, you see somebody that's just going to sit down on the trail or lay down on the trail. You never know. So I put my headlamp on him and, uh, and I think he's saying, look, so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this guy's like, He's found a, I don't know, like a, a, a nest of baby robins and we're going to save him, you know, something like that. And then as I get closer, I'm shining my headlamp on him. He's saying, don't look. And it's because he's kind of going to the bathroom right there on the trail. I guess he was in a spot where he couldn't really get off the trail. And when uh, nature called out in nature, the guy's going to do what he's got to do. So uh, so I kind of moved my headlamp along. Um, the another, next question, do you sleep? Uh, no, no. I, I mean, in, in 100K, you're finishing before a full day. So uh, spoiler here on this one, my time was fi- a little 15 hours, just under 16 hours. Um, on 100 milers as well, you're, you're kind of going until you're done. There's some races now. Um, there's a Lake Tahoe 200 mile run. And I just read about one in Southern Utah that's I think 238 miles. Those take, you know, you have two or three days to finish those. So those I hear they do have sleeping areas. But uh, boy, if I tried to stop and sleep, um, I don't know if I would ever wake up again. And that is an odd thing, too, is that I can be completely tired at night, um, having not done any type of vigorous exercise, and fall right asleep. But when I'm running 100K or 100 miler or one of these 24-hour runs for a school, uh, you just it's weird. You just don't get that tired while you're doing it. Maybe it's just because you, you just have that blood pumping through you and the adrenaline, and, and it's just, you know, and you're up and you're running and it's exercise. So, um, but you don't sleep. I have had some kind of funny things. I remember uh, again, back to this first hundred that I ran, I did really want to, and it was actually, it was with Teo as well, where he had asked me how I was feeling at one point, And I, I just said, I'm, I just kind of want to lay down just right here on the trail just for a second. And it made perfect sense to me, but thank goodness he didn't let me. And I remember, uh, one of my Tahoe rim trail hundreds, I had my buddy Trevor pacing me from mile 80 to hundred and I didn't sleep, um, as in like laying down and sleeping, but I do remember uh, it was on this climb up to this Snow Valley peak. At, at that one, the elevation at the top of that peak was 10,000 feet. And we're climbing up this peak, and it's uh, mile 80-something. And I remember, um, I remember I was just 
thinking and talking in numbers. And to me, it made perfect sense. And I was kind of ticked off with Trevor because he wasn't talking back to me. And I was, I was throwing out just, you know, eight, 17, four, six, I don't know, six or seven. And I'm just looking at him and he's looking at me and he's not giving me any feedback. And so I feel like that was the closest I've, I've ever been to maybe literally sleep running. And uh, I've thought about that one often. And I think that's just because during one of these races, you're constantly trying to do the math of how far till the next aid station and when did I take my last gel and, and how much water do I have left? And, and you know, you're kind of just doing these numbers all day and how many miles do I have left in the race? And I got to break it down into chunks and, and that sort of thing. So then I, I was just kind of thinking in numbers. Uh, what do you eat? That was one. I kind of touched on that a little bit before. Um, I experimented early in my ultra running career trying to eat solids. Some guys, my buddy Jeffrey literally will have uh, his wife bring him an In-N-Out burger at mile 50. Um, I can't do that. I've tried and, and I've tried one, one race I did successfully eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. But since that time, if I put one in my mouth, I feel like it just sucks all the moisture out and it's hard to get down. And, uh, but so, um, you know, I do a little bit of fruit, a little bit of something that might sound good, but I, I use these gels. I, I, oh, I eat so many of the gels. I get so tired of the gels. Basically you end up just like trying to just swallow them in one, in one gulp, like a pill. But at this race in particular, um, it was, uh, it was pretty steady dose of, uh, of gels. I did, I did get a couple of peanut butter sandwiches down at one point early and, uh, but it was mainly just, just gels. I tried to eat a little bit of fruit later on in the race too. Um, I got the, the question of what is the hardest part? So in this particular race, the hardest part was a nine mile climb and it was from mile 14 to mile 23. So the race starts out and this one had a conga line of just epic proportions. We literally start and it's still kind of in the dark and there's, uh, I got the numbers later, 208 starters and we all take off. And then by the end of the parking lot, you're down to a single track trail, which means it is one person at a time. So it was almost like, you know, you, everybody starts and then you immediately stop and you're just slowly walking toward, um, the trail and, and the trail, the single track track trail goes into the woods. And as soon as you get there, you see why the holdup. And it's because there's these two sections of swamp and there were these kind of loose, uh, limbs or branches that were in the swamp and you had to take it pretty careful if you didn't want to get your feet wet. And, uh, you know, you know, you're going to get your feet wet later on in a race, but sometimes it's not very fun to in the first half mile when you've got uh, 63 miles to go. So this, you know, conga line, and then finally things break up a little bit. And it was just, it was a wonderful morning. And I was just trying to chat with people around me. And usually there are people, a lot of people are really chatty at, uh, in these races in the beginning, because we know we have a long way to go. And there's always the classic jokes of, you know, you're, somebody's getting really far ahead and, and, you know, oh, there goes my chance for the lead. Or somebody always yells cramp early on. And, you know, I don't know the, the, the classic ultra running joke, somebody, I think when we got to 10 K, you know, he's like, I thought this was a 10 K, not a hundred K a couple of like, uh, courtesy chuckles, that sort of thing. But we just kind of settle in and everybody's doing a nice version of, have you done this before? What's the course like, you know, what other ultras have you done? That sort of thing. So that was kind of my mindfulness practice there. But the hardest part was this nine mile climb. So there was no aid, no aid station from this mile 14 to mile 23. And to be fair, the, the race directors and the race letters, they were very clear about, um, hey, you need a bunch of water. And so people these days are, are using hydration packs that hold a ton of water, uh, handheld bottles, that sort of thing. And the race had recommended that you do a hydration pack plus an extra bottle. And in my mind, I just was like, I'm an, I'm an old pro. So I had two handheld bottles, I think 27 ounces each. So I had 57 ounces of fluid for this nine-mile exposed climb. 
and the temperatures that day got up in the 90s. So I, I ran out of water about two miles from the top, and I even recorded a um, something on my phone that I was going to share with my family uh, just to kind of keep me occupied, but I went back and watched it, and I was I was kind of nutty. Um, I think I was a halluc- darn near starting to hallucinate. I was just thinking about all the things I was going to drink. And there were people on the trail that were, uh, you know, other runners, that were starting to see the casualties of people just walking slow up this hill or, or sitting down on the side. And it was kind of neat that people were sharing whatever water they did have. And then I had, I started having these fantasies that, that uh, word was going to get up to the next aid station. And so they were going to send people back with water. And so I kind of just around every corner, I'm hoping that that's going to happen. And that didn't kind of happen. But what did happen was about a half a mile out from the aid station, which was a half a mile insane climb that felt like it was straight up to get to this peak, this mile 23, this, I think, 6,500 feet. Um, there was just a table, and there was a guy there, and he had just bottles, giant bottles of water. And so that was, I felt like it was an oasis. So I wanted to hug him. I wanted to kiss him. But uh, I, I filled up with a bottle. So in, in a stretch of eight and a half miles, I had to stretch out two bottles of water. And then in this half-mile climb up to this aid station, then I, I was I did an entire new bottle, a whole bottle of water. And once I got to the aid station, then it's like I, I went too far. I mean, I was drinking. They have Coke there because then the carbonation kind of feels good. The sugar gives you a rush. The caffeine does. So I'm drinking cups of Coke and more water and filling my water bottles. And I'm trying to eat things. And then my stomach was just kind of sloshing around on me. So so getting out of there felt a little bit odd, but I knew that I had to replenish all the fluids that I had gone through. So so I know this is going on longer than I had anticipated, but the course from that point after the peak, uh, you would assume then that you're going to be able to make up all this time because if you look at the elevation profile, it was all downhill. But what I didn't know is uh, apparently San Diego trails, and particularly in this area, are very rocky. And not just rocky, but loose rock. So for the next several miles... It was downhill, but it was on loose rock. And, and not just a couple of loose rocks, but like the whole trail bed was loose rocks. And so you felt like you almost couldn't run. And, uh, and on that section, there were a couple of people that I, I literally watched um, roll an ankle or two and kind of have to really slow down. But so I made it past that section, got the downhill going. And, and that's even one of the funny things too. So even when I tell you my time at the end of this, and, and if you're an ultra runner, uh, great. You, you, you're going to know exactly where I'm going with this. But to any kind of casual listener that uh, is still hanging in there, and, and if so, bless you. Um, when you do a marathon, when you do a 5K, a 10K, you know, there might be a little hill here and there. But normally you kind of know what a, what a benchmark is for time. People are trying to break four hours on a marathon. You know, that's like a nine-minute mile pace. Or people are trying to break 20 minutes on a 5K or 40 minutes on a 10K. And those are we know those paces. So with an ultra marathon, every course is different. The elevation profile is different. The trail structure is different. Um, the terrain is different. Y- you name it, it's different. So it, it's been it's kind of funny. If you really want to get an ultra runner ticked off, um, if you hear that he's run a race, then ask him what his time was, him, him or her. Ask, ask the, them what their time are is. <laughs> you know where I'm going with that. Ask, ask what their time is and then, and then stop and pause and then make this face like you're doing the math. And then, because when you do the math, it's not going to sound that impressive. It's going to end up being like 13 or 14 minute miles or whatever. Then look at them and then say the phrase, oh, so you were kind of taking it easy, huh? And then watch them exp- watch their head literally explode at that moment. Because in the ultra world, so imagine this, this nine-mile climb that there was very little sections of it that were even runnable. So you're doing 20, 22, 23-minute miles, even if you're trying to power walk. So every one of those, 
think about that in theory, you know, so when I go run a, a road marathon and I've done 50, 60 of those and, and, and at one point I was, you know, that, that guy that was trying to qualify for the Boston marathon and I had to break a certain time. Um, when I was doing it, I had to, to break a three hour and 15 minute marathon. So it worked out into, I don't know, uh, seven minute miles or something like that for the whole marathon. So I know, you know, what that, that, that was hard to do and I had to keep up my, my miles and my splits. But then at an ultra marathon, um, so if, if you're going to do a seven minute mile, picture that. So if you do a 22 mile, 22 minute mile uphill, in order to make up that time to get your average back to a seven minute mile, then on that next mile, you have to run like what? A negative, um, what, 15, negative 20 minute mile? So, so you can kind of see that now build nine of those up in a row. And then on your downhill, have a mile, you know, where you're, even though you're going downhill, you got this loose rock bed and, uh, and your, your times are just, you know, in the ultra world, it seems like the times aren't as important. Now there are some elite runners that are just incredible. If you look at the, the course record for Western States, which is again, 40 something thousand feet of elevation, canyons, massive canyons and heat and snow. And I mean, that race is just incredible. But the course record holders are maintaining eight-minute miles through all of that. But that's that is just that is insane. I don't even understand how that works. Um, but so so climbing this, uh, you know, climbing these um, hills kind of does eat into your time. So um, I know that that doesn't sound as impressive, and it probably sounds like I'm making excuses. But again, if you really want to tick off your ultra running friends, do that. I had a funny experience with some friends of mine who had done that. It kind of said, oh, wow, so it really wasn't that fast. And then uh, they had gone and run in one of those Ragnar events and, uh, and, and bless my friend's heart. She was so cute. She came up to me um, at church uh, after on a Sunday after she had done this Tahoe Ragnar event. And she just said, hey, uh, sorry about those comments about your pace because I actually ran on that trail. And, yeah, you kind of can't do much with those hills, can you? And I was just like, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, you really can't. Um, so, so that's kind of fun. So why mindfulness? I kind of talked about that a little bit before. And that really was when I ran the Tahoe Rim Trail 100 last summer, my pacer was a good friend of mine named Chris. And Chris is going to come on the podcast here in a couple of weeks and, and really talk about, he's been through a lot of, uh, a lot of things in his life and, and has kind of really embraced this concept of mindfulness. And, and so he is one who taught me in that race that it, when you're when you're breathing, when it's hard to breathe because of the elevation or the climb, that mindfulness in that moment is just to focus on your legs and really picture pushing your leg into the ground, through the ground, um, into the dirt, and just focus on each leg, one leg at a time, pushing into the ground. And if your legs are tired, then it is 100% focus on your breathing, focus on the the in and the out, the chest expanding, and you know the inhale, the exhale. And just focus on that. And then, and so when you're doing that, if you're focusing on your breathing, then you're not paying attention to your legs. If you're focusing on your legs, the breathing, you're not paying as much attention to that. And in both of those scenarios, you're not going to this place of what if, what if, what if, you know. And, and I think that's part of the thing I love about the ultra running is you hit not just one wall where your body says, hey, we're good, let's stop. But you hit multiple walls and you make it through those walls. And, and I think that that's one of these metaphors for life where you kind of come up against some difficult situations and you know if you just stay present, if you don't chase those negative thoughts around, that you can make it through that wall. Sure, there's going to be another one. Um, you know, with marathons, a lot of time people say that at mile 20 you hit the wall. And uh, sometimes I'll get asked, you know, do you ever hit a wall in a, in a 100 miler or, or even a 50 miler? And, and I always say, yeah, you hit several walls. That's what's kind of fun about it. Um, and so once you get through that wall, it's, it's just, it's exhilarating. So the mindfulness piece for me in this run was, you know, it was on, it was, it was 
uh, all the time. I had to make sure that I was focused. And I spent time, I literally thought through um, every member of my family. I thought about my relationship with them and I focused on each one of them and I wished them, you know, well. I prayed for them. I, you know, I, I thought nice things about them. I went through my entire client list and I had let a lot of my clients know that, uh, that I was going to do that, kind of just trying to let them know that, uh, that, um, that concept of mindfulness. So I went through all of my clients and what they were going through and tried to send them, um, you know, a prayer for them, positive vibes, that sort of thing. Uh, I tried to, to be very present and mindful with aid station workers, with other runners that I was passing by and, uh, just tried to really not, not dwell or focus on anything negative. And, and here is the thing that I thought was amazing. I was talking with my wife before the race, and this is something that I've already put into my therapy since in this week. But she was talking to me about, she's a pretty avid cyclist. She's completed a full Ironman triathlon. She's swam from Alcatraz seven times. She's, she's just amazing. She really is. And she was telling me that on, on a cycling training that there was a coach that said, never make a major decision on an uphill climb. And at first I, I listened, I heard her, and I really didn't get the significance of that. And we talked about it for a minute. But she said that a lot of times if she's going to go out and do a 50 or 60-mile bike ride, uh, she might be on a real difficult climb and know that she has another section to go. And her, her mind wants to say, you know, when I'm done with this climb, I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and go home. I've got other things to do, and I really don't need to be going as long as I'm going. But um, that concept is just brilliant. So when you are on an uphill climb, and this was, for example, on this nine-mile climb for me, uh, my mind did go to these places when I, when I wasn't fully engaged or mindful or present of, you know, why am I doing this? And I'm going to be sore. And what does it really matter if I get into Western States or not? And I probably won't. And, and, you know, what's the big deal with all this running anyway? And, you know, and, and your mind goes to all these places. And so I love the fact that she had shared that with me of, and I thought that I would think, you know, don't make any decisions on this climb. Let's just get through this climb. So using the mindfulness practices and then kind of using that as my uh, major thought of don't make a decision on an uphill climb, um, that, that really just made the day. And once I made that particular climb, um, then finishing up that 32-mile loop really was not as difficult as I thought it would be. The 12-mile loop after that, the one that I thought was going to be really easy, was pretty brutal. It was another just long-ish climb, and then there was this little bog, and I, I just misstepped. And so I got both my feet soaked in mud, and then as soon as I get out of this bog, there's a horse trough there. So I thought, who cares? So then I went ahead and just washed my feet off in this horse trough, and so I did end up running with some wet feet for, I don't know, 10 or 15 miles, but, but it was fine. Um, but then after that second loop, then I can't even tell you how excited I was for that third loop because my wife and my 17-year-old daughter were going to be there, and they were going to pace me the remaining 18 miles. And that kept me going all day. And I thought about that in terms of just even things that, um, you know, again, not making decisions on an uphill climb in life uh, when we are when we're in the midst of things that feel really difficult or, or, or kind of icky, that that's not the time to make major life decisions. You know, get through that moment, and then when the waters are more calm, do that. And then the other concept of that is look to those who you love, look to those who inspire, look to those who um, will kind of bring you joy and can help get you out of that situation. So I look forward to seeing my wife and daughter so much. And then once I met up with them, uh, so I guess at that point, uh, 32 and 13, we were at 45 miles and, and it was just, it was wonderful. And it's funny because the, the, the perspective was so funny. I, I meet with them and I'm like, Oh my gosh, guys, all we have is like four, four and a half more hours of running. That's amazing. 
and I and that wasn't the right thing to say to them. And I find out later that they're both frightened to death that they're not going to be able to keep up with me for 18 miles. And I'm telling them, you know, I'm going to feel like I'm running, but you could probably walk, do a fast walk. And as a matter of fact, there's a funny thing in the in the ultra running world. A lot of times, if you're doing, if you're pacing somebody the last 40, 50 miles of a race, um, they are they they feel like they are killing it, and uh, and you really could walk as fast as a running. But don't, because because I've had that experience where I feel like I'm going, and then I look behind me, and my pacer's just walking, you know, uh, and I'm like, hey man, humor me, right? Act like, oh my gosh, Tony, you're killing me here. There's a there's a stretch on the Western States Hundred. It's mile ninety three, and it's downhill, two miles of downhill. When you go practice that section on a just on a Saturday, you can cruise. I mean, it's wide open fire trail. You can do six seven minute miles, just inertia is kind of carrying down the hill. And then on Western States, one of the years, I'm with my pacer, and I'm like, I'm gonna tear that part up, man. I am gonna kill that part. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have like nine, eight, nine minute miles. And when I look back on all my data from this race, I'm gonna go, yeah, look at that, ninety something miles, and I'm still clocking these sub tens. You know, it's gonna be amazing. So then we're we're on that stretch, and I'm I'm just like, oh, I'm giving it everything I have, even though my quads are shot, and my you know your your brakes, your quads, and your legs are shot. And and I finally say, uh, ask my friend, and I say, all right, man. Let me know how fast. What are we doing? And he's like, hey, you're doing good. I'm like, no, no, no. Tell me for real. Like, I want to hear it. I want to hear. Like, and, and in my mind, I'm like, dang, am I like doing seven or eight minute miles? I mean, does this guy not even want to tell me because he thinks I'm going too fast? And he's like, no, really. We're almost to the, the bottom and you just go. Like, this is your day. I'm like, hey, enough. You know, enough with the Tony Robbins stuff. Just tell me. What am I doing? And he let me know you know, uh, 12 and a half, 13 minute mile. That's not bad. And I'm like, Oh, I thought it was like Olympic sprinter. I mean, I'm, I'm ready to take on Usain Bolt. I'm thinking like, this is my thing. Give me 93 miles to warm up and then put me on a track and, and, and I'm going to tear people up. But instead it's like, I'm basically like fast walking. So down this hill. Um, so, you know, so my, my wife and daughter are, were worried about that at first, but then we just had the most amazing night together. I tried to stay, well, I didn't even try. I mean, I was, I was, I was positive. I mean, I was as positive as I could be and just grateful and thankful that they were there with me. We were able to talk about all kinds of things and, and we were able to kick rocks together. I kicked so many rocks that I really do think I'm going to lose my first toenails. I've never lost toenails and I have on both of my feet right now. If I lift my toes up into the top of my shoes, there is some pain. So um, I'm worried I'm going to lose these toenails. But just kicking rocks and uh, the dusty trail. I mean, you're literally eating people's dust the entire time. And we just had such a fun experience. They made it no problem at all. A couple times I tried to give it a, a good fast run on a, on a field or maybe on a slight downhill. And uh, wanted them to say, oh my gosh, Tony, you're killing me. Slow down. And uh, they didn't have that script, I guess, in front of them. So they didn't, didn't quite say that part. But absolutely loved it. There were some kind of funny observations there too. Um, they they were there for a lot of the afternoon and watched a lot of the people drop, a lot of the carnage, and uh, and they were super nice and sweet and were grateful that uh, I was nice to them. I don't know why you would not be nice to your pacer, but there's a thing in the ultra world where I feel like at some point people feel like they are supposed to be dramatic, and that's a whole other you know one more therapy topic. Then I'll wrap this thing up. Is that is the concept where when I was coming into one of these aid stations and I, or or this this. Kayamuka Park, where the loops all got back to, and I was going to see my family. Now they were always so surprised, saying, "Man, you look, you look so good. You look like you're doing well." And I think that's one of those deeper concepts of life. When I am coming into uh, that park, I I don't find value in 
wanting to show them my suffering and wanting them to feel like, oh my gosh, I, poor guy, you know, I feel like there's so much more power in me coming in and just, just, just giving it everything I've got and smiling and thanking the volunteers and being excited to see my family. Because I feel like that is, that is that, you know, strength-based leading with um, positivity, leading with love, leading with kindness of just coming into that. And I want, I want to, to people to kind of say, okay, you know, that guy is, is looking strong. I, you know, I, I want to be able to do that instead of coming in broken, you know, and, and I, and granted, there are people that get hurt. There really are. But I also feel like it's a pretty big movement, uh, you know, sometimes in the world where it's like the, the, Hey, I want to, I, I, I get my identity off of, you know, my, um, sickness or my illness or my, you know, and, 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 and wanting this from people to kind of just, Oh man, how do you do it? You know, that kind of thing. And then there's that, you know, Hey, I am doing it. I mean, I, I've worked with clients that just have just incredible stories of the things they've been through. And it's like, you would never even know it. And then when you find out that backstory, it's just so amazing to, to hear how they've kind of dealt with things. And so I feel like that was a little microcosm of that coming in there. I wanted, I wanted my family to see that, uh, Hey, I can do tough things and, and I can tough this out. And, uh, and, and that I love, I love just the fact that they were there and that, uh, they were there to be with me and, and spend the night running with me. So here's the numbers, final number. But anyway, it was a wonderful race. Um, and my wife asked me if I would do it again. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I would, um, that was a hard one. Uh, and obviously there's costs involved in, in going down there and there's other ones that are closer, but, uh, I wanted to do the hundred K instead of a hundred miler and the rocks, the rocks were really hard. I'm not a good technical runner, um, technical on the downhill. Cause, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't spend any time on the trails. So, um, I don't know if I would do that one again, beautiful course, super well run, great swag, t-shirts and mugs and, and metals and the aid stations were, were well stocked. And so nothing about that uh, negative at all, but, uh, just those rocks, man, kicking those rocks just did a number on my feet. So the final numbers, um, it says on the website that 250 people, they cap it at 250 entrants. Uh, there were 33 people that did not start. So I guess it maybe didn't quite, um, sell out. It said there were 208 starters, uh, 33 DNS did not start. Um, so out of the 208 starters, there were 147 finishers. So that was 61 drops, which is, tells you kind of how hard of a course that was. So that was 29% of the field dropped. So I had to finish. There was a cutoff time for the race itself of 19 hours. And, uh, but the Western States cutoff time to be able to qualify for the race to put my lottery tickets in this year, um, had to be under 17 hours. And so my final time was 15 hours and 58 minutes, which was good for 77th place. So right there in the middle of the pack. But, uh, I, I honestly was prepared to be the last person if I had to, as long as I could qualify for that Western States time based on the lack of training that I did. But it was a grateful experience. Um, I was able to use the mindfulness skills. So fun to be out there in nature, in the outdoors, and just to to, to be able to be um, mindful and present in that kind of a that kind of an environment. And then just to have that support of my family and to look forward to them um, to learn that lesson of not making major decisions on an uphill climb and be able to apply that into into my practice and uh, into my own daily life. There were just so many things that I could pull from that that were wonderful. So I appreciate you staying with me on this special podcast that has gone on far too long, but it is a race report and, uh, and I hope that you enjoyed it. If you've stayed here this long, um, this episode was sponsored by the virtual couch. Uh, I am actually the virtual couch. It was sponsored by Eli's extracts. You can go to Eli's E L I S dash extracts.com. Use the coupon code virtual couch for 25% off of any purchase there and taking us home as now per usual 
will be Aurora Florence, and it's wonderful because it truly, life is wonderful. And uh, coming up this week, this interview with Paul Gilmartin, and I can't wait to post that one. So have a wonderful day, and I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most It's Heal the legs and hearts you broke the pain.